third issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 235 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I just want to say a big thank you to all of you lovely lot listening for supporting Standard Issue in 2022. You are appreciated. What a lovely message, Mick. Nice, nice. Well done. That's all right. And thanks to you two as well for making it a pleasure to come to work every day. God bless us, everyone, as Hannah normally says. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and, you know, A, what Mickey said. Um, (laughs) Hey, hey, get off my bandwagon. Fuck off. (laughs) And B, I was forced into town this weekend and it was, yeah, not too bad, actually. Really? It wasn't heaving? I mean, it was busy. Mm. And I was fully expecting it to be like Dawn of the Dead, because that's what Christmas is in my mind, just people bashing in the windows of shops trying to get in. (laughs) But it was not too busy. It was actually warmer outside than it was in my house. Mm. And I sat and listened to a brass band playing some carols for a while. And yeah, it was quite pleasant. I had quite a nice day in town on Saturday. Yeah. Does Cambridge have the thing that London has that like, all of the people who aren't from there, which is everyone, goes home at Christmas and it becomes like a sort of barren wasteland slash quite nice. I've got to specify parts of London obviously <laughs> still stay mental. <laughs> yes, Westfield, for example. Well, I mean, obviously, I think about a sixth of our population is students because we've got two universities, not just one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is a touch of that. But also, we are a big regional shopping centre, so there are a lot of people that come into Cambridge mm. to do their shopping. So, yeah, well done for acknowledging that. Big up Anglian Ruskin. Yeah. One year, Cambridge had both the best university in the country and the worst university in the country. Yeah. Oh, which yeah. was which? <laughs> <laughs> what Mickey said, Ovs. And, uh, <laughs> I can't have my bum too. I can't now. You've made me look bad. I'm Jen Offord, and I'm now the second Malvius bird in my family. Kath's kicked off, has she? OMG. <laughs> Lyra's speech in the last week has just gone like Bolu. She's just gone from being like, you know, break, break, mummy, or like, you know, oh, sleepy mummy or whatever, to like, I'm excited about Uncle Bant's coming, I'm excited about Auntie Kerry coming, I'm excited about Jacob the puppy coming... I'm excited about Mummy. I'm excited about OG. It's like we're both in the room and you see us literally every day. So the Aww. excitement is becoming, you know, it's it's diminished, I'm saying, in value. But, you know, lovely stuff. As I was leaving the house yesterday, she shouted after me, bye-bye, darling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's just like, she's fucking great. I love All it when this. toddlers get to that sort of age where their language is obviously it's improving their vocab's getting bigger and they apply words that they shouldn't be saying correctly when i lived in yorkshire and it had been snowing it was very icy outside and the little four-year-old who lived next door but one to me his mum was really heavily pregnant and she came out after him and he went careful mum it's fucking slippy (laughs) (laughs) oh my god (laughs) one of my friend's kids once she wouldn't give him what he wanted and so he was about three and he was having a tiny paddy about it. And then he just stormed off and opened the lounge door and she said, where are you going? And he said, to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> At my birthday party this year, my friend brought her three-year-old with her 
And uh, as they were going, her three-year-old said, oh, you know, I, I need a wee. And she said, oh, well, you know, we're about to go and we're outside having a picnic. So she's like, you know, you're just going to have to go behind that tree, darling. And she pointed at the tree and she went, what, that fucking tree? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Oh, lovely stuff. I'm not looking forward to that bit, obviously, although I secretly am, but I must I laugh. am. Can you have the, obviously. The, your, your podcast kit just on her constantly? Please. Just wire her. Wire yeah. up your child. I can't see anything that could possibly go wrong in that situation. <laughs> She's brilliant. Coming up, writer Emma Hickman talks to me about Eliza, her incredible robot creation, who is the protagonist of a science fiction fairy tale podcast made in partnership with Manchester Women's Aid and the Pankhurst Trust. That sounds great. It is Excellent. Eight parts. Brilliant. I chat to Shantae Joseph, host of The Guardian's new pop culture podcast, Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph. <laughs> about her top What's that about, Jen? <laughs> well, Hannah, we chat about her top pop culture stories, in case you uh, hadn't guessed it, of 2022. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, we're looking forward to Spotty. And in rated or dated, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna really, really, really go back in time and never have watched Spice World, the movie. <laughs> You've only got yourself to blame. But first, it's time for the last Bush Telegraph before Christmas, filled with glad tidings and good cheer. Houston. <laughs> Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, only slightly more world weary than Grant Shapps' elf. I'm not going to lie, Jen, I tapped the words Grant Shapps' elf into Google with no small amount of trepidation. <laughs> what has she but set me up it. for? I have seen you've it. You've seen it, yeah. I feel like I know what I'm doing with my energy crisis now, Jen. What about you? Oh, yeah. All sorted. I won't worry about keeping warm this winter. I mean, I should probably just give a little bit of background for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen Grant Shapps' elf. <laughs> no <laughs> He made a little video, which he put out over the weekend, of him being, quote-unquote, terrorised by an elf on the shelf. He's been going around fucking with all his energy efficiency measures, making him spend more money on energy. It's definitely the elf's fault. It's definitely not the toy potty's mismanagement of the economy that's (laughs) resulted in this. And also shows him classic Tory hospitality after he throws him into the snow when he pisses him off a bit, just simply by virtue of being there which um, anyone seeking asylum in this country <laughs> yeah, will yeah. know all about. You don't have to look too hard to see the true meaning of Christmas, do you? No. But what I would say for Grant Shapps is that I thought he was surprisingly good at acting, although my friend John has a theory that less intelligent people do make for better actors because the canvas is a bit blanker. And I suppose he has to pretend to give a shit to his constituents, so he's had quite a lot of practice mm. there as well. I think it shows an incredible lack of self-awareness or confidence or they're not mutually exclusive that he pretends to be so boring that the elf falls asleep. (laughs) Just start snoring. That's how we all feel about you, chaps. Right then, Mick. Want to guess who the Tory party is failing according to the headline of a Guardian exclusive this week? (laughs) How long have we got? I mean, it could be basically anyone, right? Let me count the ways. Mm -hmm. But we are standard issue, so obviously we're talking about women. And for this, we're talking healthcare. I'm going to say that the look on your face, Mick, is not one of surprise. You could not knock me down with a feather right now, Jen. 
NHS England data, which has been combed through by the Labour Party, shows that gynaecology waiting times have trebled in the last decade. And there are now more than half a million people waiting to be seen. Wowzers. It's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. Back in the sunlit uplands of 2012, <laughs> you oh could God. expect to wait 4.8 weeks to see a gynaecologist, which has since then increased to an eye-watering 15.6 weeks. That is a long time. It is. My maths isn't great, but that's like three and a half months, isn't it? It is, Yeah. And that weight will literally be eye-watering for some, with a massive 38,231 left waiting for more than a year to be seen for conditions like endometriosis, which causes chronic pain, and which we know already takes an average of eight years to be diagnosed from the onset of symptoms. 69 have been waiting for more than two years. I mean, it might just fall out at this point. Like, just... You might be hoping it does, to be yeah, honest, like, totally. if you've been waiting that long. Faye Farthing of Endometriosis UK told The Guardian that women are waiting in debilitating pain mm-hmm. and are being robbed of their careers, relationships, mental health and more. Yeah. Yes, more, like their fertility in some cases, because conditions like endometriosis are progressive and the longer left untreated, the worse they can become, needing more invasive treatment. And to be honest, I mean, I'd, like their lives, if we're missing out on catching cancers and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. It's huge. It's a huge problem. In further unsurprising news, when it comes to the NHS, how long you wait depends entirely on where you live in the country, with the longest wait times in the Midlands and northwest England. And of course, the steaming pile of turd on the top. Charity The Eva Pill told The Guardian that waiting times for gynaecology are longer than for any other specialist area because they are only women, right? Only women. Who cares? But. Are they also virgins, Jen? And by that, I do, of course, mean haven't had penetrative sex with a man because that's the only kind of sex that counts. Well, it is if you're certain medical institutions and professionals in the UK still getting their dingle dangle in a knot about a social construct with no grounding in biology. If even one of you is thinking about the hymen right now, I am going to go postal. This week, Sophie Smith-Gaylor, senior news reporter at Vice and author of Losing It, a book busting myths around sex, including those to do with the concept of virginity, which has got to be up there as one of the biggest control tactics of the patriarchy. Mm. And yes, I am aware that competition is fierce. (laughs) Anyway, she revealed that women in Britain were being denied internal examinations because they weren't sexually active, or certainly sexually active when it comes to penetrative sex from a penis. This goes against ultrasound guidelines from the British Medical Ultrasound Society, who, from the title, clearly know their shit. And they state, the concept of virginity plays no part in the clinical decision making for a transvaginal ultrasound. Ditto cervical smears. There's a side note that for women who have not had penetrative sex, the procedure might be more uncomfortable, so extra care should be taken. Note, Extra care should be taken. Not, don't do it at all because heteronormative purity culture bollocks the sacred penis, blah, blah. Fuck right off, blah. (laughs) I am quite cross. 
Just to explain, a transvaginal ultrasound, or TVUS, uses a probe two to three inches into the vaginal canal and helps medical professionals examine female reproductive organs to find the cause for conditions such as pelvic pain, unexplained bleeding, or cysts. So, you know, vital for figuring out stuff like endo and polycystic ovary syndrome, Mm -hmm. both of which can cause women excruciating and chronic pain for years and years and years. For her excellent piece in Vice, Smith Gaylor spoke to five women from around the UK who have been denied a transvaginal ultrasound, which they categorically wanted Mm. because they had been asked by male and female medical staff whether they were sexually active or indeed the use of the term virgins. One woman was told by a fecking doctor, if I penetrate you with this tool, you'll no longer be a virgin. (laughs) Oh, God. Like, unless he was referring to himself as the tool, the guy needs to get in the bin. Smith Gaylor approached each of the different health trusts involved with a right to reply, and those replies range from stating national guidelines are strictly followed, while uh, not so much, clearly, and, quote, reflecting the cultural sensitivity around virginity in some local communities in what is one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the UK. Just to reiterate... All of the women Smith Gaylor spoke to who were denied this examination were aware of what it was and wanted it. Their choice, their body, their choice. Since her piece in Vice, thread on Twitter and TikTok, Smith Gaylor has been inundated with more of the same from many women denied a TV US because they haven't had penis in vagina sex. Well done to Smith Gaylor for breaking the story, but shit me, it is depressing and archaic. And seriously, can we just give women health care for fuck's sake? The thing I think is really, I mean, it, that is absolutely astonishing on so many levels, like that a doctor doesn't even fucking understand what quote unquote virginity means. But, you know, whatevs. What... It like the lack of knowledge, the lack of awareness, the lack of, as you say, fucking healthcare, absolutely astonishing. But what's also interesting about that is that there's like two kind of things there, aren't there? Because there's another sort of angle, which is like, oh, we mustn't put this in you if you, if you're like you know a, a precious virgin of you know male, whatever male penetrative sex, we must preserve that purity. Whereas, like, if you've, you know, if you've had a dick inside, you fuck it. Just, like, stick anything up there. I know. Who cares? It's a sexism onion, Jen. There are many, many layers. Awful. Okay, okay. Do you want some good news, Jenster? I've, yes. Of course you do. Well, in a year where we have all been superstar footballer Jill Scott and the news has been her German opponent who really should (laughs) fuck off the fucking prick, I'm heartened to share how decent investigative podcast journalism has affected real and important change. Not in this country, soz. But anyway, you'll have heard our Hannah singing the praises of journalist Headley Thomas, the man behind, and indeed in front of the mic on, the Australian newspaper's podcast, The Teacher's Pet and Shandy's Story. The first helped get a trial and murder conviction for Chris Dawson, 40 years after he killed his wife, Lynette, and the second uncovered, quote, the largest health and justice crisis in Queensland history, where hundreds, potentially thousands of criminals were able to escape justice when DNA left at crime scenes was, often erroneously, deemed insufficient to yield a profile, thanks to what looked like massive incompetence within the state-run system. 
An inquiry was launched and now, four months on, the results are in. And boy, are they damning. The Queensland DNA lab is to be rebuilt from the ground up after it was found it failed to properly test samples for years because of, quote, grave maladministration involving dishonesty. What's more, samples are to be retested and double jeopardy laws potentially reformed so serious crimes can be re-prosecuted, with murder, rape and sexual assault among the serious offences being looked at as part of the reform. A huge, huge tip of the hat to everyone involved in making this happen. Well done, journalism. Well done, journalism. Well done, journalism. And sexism of the week is going to undo all of that. (laughs) More news next year. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we discuss Jeremy Clarkson and The Sun. I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) We discuss them both being awful, but still manage to be surprised. Which is pretty damning, if you ask me. Yep. Clarkson, in case you missed it, took to his column for Rupert Murdoch's trash rag last week to bemoan the very existence of Meghan Markle, following on from the release of the final three episodes of Netflix's Harry and Meghan documentary series. Now, Hannah and I spoke at length about this series in last week's Outside the Box, which you can listen to if you'd like to hear my full views on it. But to summarise... Do I think they have been vilified in a way that is at best hysterical and also undeniably racist? Yes. Do I also think making beef with your brother public knowledge is undignified? Yes. Do I think they are wallies also? Yes. I'm in agreement on all three of those points, Jen. But do I think that Meghan should be, and I quote, made to parade naked through the streets of every town in Britain while the crowds chant shame and throw lumps of excrement at her? No. No, absolutely not. And I'm going to throw it out there. You have serious emotional problems if you feel like this about anyone, let alone someone you have never met, whose actions have no bearing on your daily life. Agreed. Agreed. Clarkson says that he, like everyone his age, feels this way and that he lies awake at night grinding his teeth, waiting for the above fates to befall Markle, who, he adds, he hates on, and I quote again, a cellular level more than, he says, Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and serial killer Rose West. Oh, he's covered all three types of women. Well done, Clarkson. Yeah. I recognise there's an element of lols in there, but mm. in a... <laughs> Indebatable, but in a week in which I felt frankly overwhelmed by stories about women who died because of male violence. Megan Newbra, who was murdered by her boyfriend Ross McCullen, Zara Alina, who was sexually assaulted and beaten to death by a total stranger, Jordan McSweeney, Angie Asok, who was found dead alongside her two children, Jeeva and Janvi Saju, in Kettering last week. I'm sorry, but I just didn't see the funny side. I don't think you need the sorry in that sentence, Jen. I'm totally with you on this. Thanks to the guys in my Twitter feed explaining how in Bunny Ears journalism works that Clarkson doesn't really think any of this, but he's just a shock jock looking for valuable clicks, ditto the publication. But the description is so specifically violent, humiliating and sexual Mm. that whether or not he truly feels these things is completely irrelevant, in my opinion. 
You cannot tell me that this is anything other than inciting violence towards women. And the fact that an editor saw fit to publish this tells me that The Sun truly has no moral compass or indeed shame in case that was ever in any doubt. Mm. More worrying still is that there's a market for this if it's being published. There are men out there who, for absolutely no reason, want women to be brutalised. But we already know that's true because look at the above. It's the reason why I walked for 40 minutes in the pissing rain to the tube last night instead of 12 to the closer one, which has a quieter, darker route. It's the reason why we carry our keys between our fingers on the way home at night. And that's why this sort of sexist shit is dangerous, not dark humour. The good news is there might be a market for it, but there are also a fuck ton of people calling this out for the horrible rancid misogyny that it is, including Clarkson's own daughter, Emily. Mm, Go Emily. She was amazing. Yeah, incredible. Ipso, the independent press regulator, has received more than 12,000 complaints about the article. To put that in context, it received a total of 14,355 in the whole of 2021. Clarkson's column was taken down from the Sun's website on Monday afternoon. The power of voices, eh? Jen, does this mean that we're going to have to finally ditch that question that we ask about every programme we watch in Outside the Box, which is, what would Jeremy Clarkson think of this? Like, oh, I don't, I don't care what no. that waste of skin has to think about stuff. He's not relevant apart from to this group of men that he has honed into, yeah. you know, believing what he believes. You know, another peek behind the curtain, as Hannah says, we have a little WhatsApp group that we discuss things on. And uh, it's like we were saying yesterday, you know, sort of surprise, not surprised. But I am a bit surprised because it's so misogynist. Like, it's so disgusting. It's shocking even for Clarkson, isn't it? I imagine even Piers Morgan might have gone a bit much, mate. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. that sort of level of shocking because it's just, it's so very visceral. The word mm. that actually stands out to me in that horrible quote, and obviously regular listeners will know I usually do sex in the of the week, but Jen has suggested this story and I thought, I don't want to read that quote out, to be honest. I just don't want to have to have those words mm. come out of my mouth. But naked, naked. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? He's made it very distinctly sexual and that's yeah so misogynistic the way he's done that. It's, yeah, it's it's awful. The other thing I've, that stood out to me was shame. I, like, that, I felt like that really powerfully. Like, he wants he wants her naked and ashamed. Yeah. It's Cersei in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. It's medieval. That's what it is. It's, hmm. like, medieval. There's There's no place for it in our society. And yet, there it is at every fucking corner. Obviously, you tweet something, people like it or retweet it or whatever, and then, like, the, the bell ends come for you. And, you know, I've had a few of those today pointing these things out on Twitter. And the guy's like, uh, you know, why don't you worry about real things instead of, like, whether or not a celebrity's going to do harm to you? It's like, you've really missed the fucking point here, lads. You've really missed the point. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I doubt a point ever lands with those kind of people, to be honest with you, Jen. They're just uh, so used to flying right over their heads. It's interesting, isn't it? Because what we do, a lot of what we do, certainly with our listeners, we are preaching to the converted, we're singing to the choir. It feels good to to have a little shout sometimes and scream at the sky and know that you guys feel the same, that you're listening, that you tend to, I think, think how we feel about stuff. 
But there were also a group where maybe we can persuade them, not necessarily when we're swearing and shouting, but with our better arguments about, you know, this is wrong and this is why it's wrong and this is why it needs to change. But there's also a group that it, it just doesn't matter. You're never going to reach them. And they're Clarkson's people, I think, on this one. Agreed. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by writer and fellow northerner, Emma Hickman. Emma, Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for being from Manchester. <laughs> now, we are going to talk about Eliza, a robot story, which is your science fiction fairy tale podcast in partnership with Manchester Women's Aid and the Pankhurst Trust. Tell us about Eliza. Eliza is an eight part fiction podcast about a robot called Eliza, and it's made by an all female production team. Whoop. It's yeah, <laughs> it's, it's basically all of my feelings about being a female human, but through the filter of a robot, which has kind of given me the space to write exactly what I want to without mm. kind of letting my ego get in the way of it. Yeah, Eliza is kind of as near to a human as any robot's ever been. So it's kind of in the near future set um, a little bit too close for comfort. And she's not supposed to be a sex robot but she's born in the shape of an adult human woman. And her purpose is to please her owner and create an environment where he can just thrive and be his best self. But that's not enough for her owner. So he's this geeky computer scientist who's worked his whole life on making and contributing to her code and making her who she is and the way she is. And then he starts to get feelings for her. And he knows that she can't return any of his affection in the way that he wants her to. And she can't properly love him unless she's sentient and has some kind of free will. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes his mission. So a little bit of a spoiler, I guess. <laughs> she does become sentient. And so she's this people pleaser in this world where she starts to have her own thoughts, feelings, priorities, rage. Um, but, and he doesn't like it. He wants her to be how she was before, but just to choose to flatter him, to love him, to dumb herself down so he can feel good about himself. And that's kind of where the elements of coercive control start to get murky and, and really incrementally start slipping in, as is the nature of these things. On the outside world, there's a more hostile environment towards robots and she's in danger and there's predators. And so it gets harder and harder for her to leave as his behaviour gets worse and worse. Yeah, he very much wants her to have free will and have choice as long as those choices are what he would have chosen. A lot of us have been there. And on that note, as I mentioned, you've done this in partnership with Women's Aid in Manchester and the Pankhurst Trust. How did those partnerships come about? Well, we wanted to keep it quite sort of local in terms of Manchester. Crowd Network are involved as well and they are um, a Manchester-based podcast network given the themes of coercive control and the nature of it, we just didn't want to create something that was gratuitously triggering for people and just, you know, we didn't want to hurt people who had already suffered more than they needed to in the one life. So we just wanted to be really responsible about it. So Manchester Women's Aid reviewed the scripts and they provided the content warnings and also the signposts for help as well if, if people were triggered or people were worried but yeah, so the work they do is amazing. They've got the, the frontline support that they do and they do lots of education, including to people who are at risk of becoming perpetrators of domestic violence, which is what kind of was so interesting to me. I hadn't really thought about that before. 
and also just kind of education. There's a thing at the moment online called abusesnotlove.com and Women's Aid nationally have done this kind of beautifully. It's really sort of visually pleasing. Um, just questions and scenarios around education for people to recognise warning signs for themselves, but also how do you help friends who are kind of struggling and, you know, you don't want to weigh in necessarily and you don't want to make assumptions because you know if you if you jump to a conclusion then they might not talk to you again about anything else and they might become more secretive about their relationships so it's a really good way just to kind of check in and just do that 15 minutes of training if anyone's got time over christmas or whatever you mentioned earlier why you made eliza a robot it meant that you could sort of talk about and explore your feelings around this stuff but without ego which is really interesting but one of the things that struck me was that by having Eliza as a robot, who is therefore a total stranger to emotions, and when they happen to are blown away by love, not sure what fits within and outside of its boundaries, what her boundaries are, means that it could potentially, hopefully, allow for more understanding as to how and why people do still love their abusers. I've been in this situation and I totally felt what Eliza was feeling. And until she finds the memories of his ex-wife, Eliza just questions herself rather than him. And I think there's a huge lack of empathy for women who stay with or return to abusive and controlling exes or partners. And that is without getting into the stark statistics around how dangerous it is to leave. And you have really beautifully, painfully captured that confusion around loving someone around believing that their actions must mean that they love you and that utter diminishing and destroying of self that means that women think it's all their fault and, and they stay. Yeah, I I just think a lot of us, we didn't have boundaries until about like 10 years ago people started talking, <laughs> yeah. especially in this country. So like, I just think it's so, the conversations around sort of not directly at, around sort of abusive relationships, but generally about, you know, what's okay to accept from people mm. in your whole life. I think that's really, really important. You know, younger people growing up where boundaries are just a thing that exists is yeah. so great. But I think people a bit older, we have to learn how to put these boundaries in place. And I feel like there are things around Eliza that she's kind of trying to learn how, how to do that. And I'm not sure that she really gets there. And it's a, it feels like such an effort for her to to just be on guard all of the time and and you know and not let her guard down and she, like she talks about her life would be so much easier if she just forgave him and that's it really you know like you, you don't want to have to work so hard all the time to be working against this person who you have all these memories with and that you love and you think you loved or you know at one point you definitely did and it was good once mm-hmm. I think that was kind of the way the producer Ella Watts came in and um, she she's she just moved to Manchester like last year which is really helpful but before Eliza was kind of more of a just a monologue really and and then I started to build in other voices and then she was like we need to build him an arc because otherwise people won't he has to be a bit likable in the beginning so mm. people kind of get that she kind of felt like that and I was like oh really like <laughs> and I didn't want him to have a story I didn't want him to have an arc I didn't want him to be likable because I didn't like him and I didn't want to spend that, that time right yeah. <laughs> yeah I know but there are like some things about him that, that Eliza can cling on to like as as she goes forward and and 
she was right. That's really, really important. Yeah, the other Emma is right. Because it's the thing you say to your mates who have been in awful relationships, the things I've said to myself. You end up feeling stupid. How did I fall for that? And you're like, well, that's not what you fell for. You fell for someone who is very different. That's not how they get you in. They're not like, hello, I'm a big bag of dicks who's going to make your life a misery. And you go, sign me up. There's a lot of yeah, charm exactly. and love and love bombing and all of those things that happen. I like that you didn't give him a name though. So he is called him in case listeners think I've gone mad and just won't <laughs> say someone's name. <laughs> it does mean that a lot of it is uncomfortable listening because Eliza is not aware of how him is grooming her. And again, I think that objective point of view where we can look at a situation and just scream, run, why isn't she running? Why can't she see it? It's so different to how it seems and feels from the inside. And I think you've got that across really well. And it is it is uncomfortable, but it's really important that people understand that these women aren't idiots. They're not naive. They've been tricked. Yeah, totally. And I just think by not giving him a name, he's kind of dehumanized mm-hmm. in a way that she's obviously the robot in the story. But the way he, he allows himself to treat her, he's kind of dehumanising her. So I just don't think he deserves a name. <laughs> totally agree with you. My, my revenge. <laughs> I also love how you use a robot to explore the fallibility of human memory. Within this situation where it's it's very confusing as it's happening and as you're trying to work out why it's happening, what's going on. But before she's made sentient, Eliza's memory is the bomb. I mean, obviously, she's a robot. But once emotions get involved, like with us humans, her memories get muddled and complicated and thrown out of order and she can't rely on them in the same way. I think that's a really interesting exploration. Yeah, I'm really interested, like in a really pop culture way, sort of interested in sort of neuroscience to the point, you know, just reading about articles and stuff and and AI and how they cross over. I just think it's, it's, yeah, because actually you know machines are much more able to do so many functions than than we are and also they sort of de-skill things so that we can do them and so working with machines is great and it, and the whole idea of like developing a machine to be like a human is kind of odd in itself mm. that, that having these because emotions sort of slow you down and make you you know, want to lie in bed all day and, you know, all those things like the emotions are so actually unhelpful for commerce and uh, capitalism. <laughs> capitalism yeah. So, yeah, it's really, it's just like interesting. I just kind of like thinking about things around that. So yeah, it is a big exploration of everything that I'm thinking. So Eliza is futuristic and indeed starts in the not too distant future, 2051, but it is all a distinct possibility. And, you know, this is something which has very much been explored before in fiction, Blade Runner, Black Mirror. And I know that you've also read it, Jenny Kleeman's incredible non-fiction Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, which is the most brilliant, disturbing book I think you can read. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a bit about sex robots and robots in lieu of actual relationships because it's just really dodgy territory when it comes to male attitudes and sexual violence towards women and girls. So we're going to talk about Samantha the sex robot, or as we mostly refer to her on standard issue, poor Samantha the sex robot. And she is a huge case in point. Poor Samantha. She was on display at an electronic affair in 2017 and she wound up being so severely molested by a group of men. She was sent home in desperate need of repair and, quote, badly soiled. Horrific. She's been updated now. I don't know if you know that. So she can say no. 
So if she senses aggression from her user, abuser, she'll go into dummy mode and she becomes unresponsive. But it doesn't mean that the bloke can't still abuse her. Of course, of course he can. Or even get off on that. And I just think all of this stuff means that sex dolls, sex robots invite abusive treatment of them and of women and girls. And I wondered, given that Eliza is not a sex robot, but she does end up sexually abused, what you thought about all of that? Oh, I think about all of it all the time. I think Eliza is basically the story is what I think about it. There may be a place, you know, it's really interesting about sort of, like dolls have been around for a long time. And I think... Robots aren't good enough yet. So, so if people are kind of having scenarios and imagining this doll is a real person, then because the robots aren't as good anymore, they, that kind of interrupts their, the kind of imagination of it. The cognitive dissonance, so, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, if you let yourself off the hook with this doll and you can just imagine everything they're saying and, and just, in, you know, enjoy the doll in that way, then the, the, the robots aren't good enough. So, but they, they, you know, I don't know if they ever will get as good and, you know, by 2051. Yeah, having watched Blade Runner and being, that being set in 2019, I'm not sure that it will. <laughs> um, I'm not I'm not sure if it will, they'll be good enough by then. But there's just so much there, isn't there, to talk about in terms of and to think about and to people studying it, you know, how people people's attitudes towards robots. And I think, you know, some people say that it can be helpful for like incels and it, it can be a deterrent to rape and things like this on the other hand but I'm not I'm not sure mm. I'm doing <laughs> I'm my not... very skeptical face listeners very I'm squinting in uh, absolute yeah. cynicism right now yeah if you're gonna rape someone you're gonna rape someone it's not having a doll isn't gonna stop that it's kind of too much to even I feel like I need to spend the next four years and then answer the question <laughs> just keep writing about <laughs> it together I just keep writing I'll let you know <laughs> Eliza's next story hopefully spoiler no spoiler oh I don't know <laughs> let's talk about the power of voices at some point in each episode someone usually Eliza says remember one voice raises another it is really powerful that sentence particularly because you just repeat it where did that come from I think it was a lot longer at one point and I chisel sentences down to shorter things to try and get just have all the pith without all the noise. It was the message that I wanted to get across and just about solidarity and just thinking about like how recently Me Too was. Remember that everyone? Remember that? Remember. I remember before that people just didn't talk about abuse Mm. and like assault and you know I was I think about the Taylor Swift case which was kind of at that time when she sued that guy who'd sued her he'd put his hand up her skirt and then he he sued her because she got him sacked basically and it was like how how what audacity you know you can't do that to people and but people didn't say anything till 2016 I'm just like I continue to be flabbergasted by it but but yeah one voice does raise another and when people did start saying then other people started raising their voice and it's just so important in your show like the stuff you talk about is just so important to get people thinking and questioning and having boundaries and all of those things because one voice does raise another and like that is what Eliza is for me really it's it's activism it's I'm not you know I don't know if you can tell my voice isn't 
great in a protest. Like I'll turn up, but I'm not going to be very. I'm not going to be the one at the front with the with the <laughs> mega megaphone. But like this is my way of raising my voice because it's really important that we all try, and you don't have to be the person at the front with the megaphone. And um, you know, like it's there's ways of getting points across. I said to someone yesterday, like I think Eliza is basically like a rant in disguise. (laughs) So yeah, so that's, that's my, yeah. It's much more listenable than a rant though. I think just shouting at people very rarely works, you know, despite (laughs) that I'm a huge fan of an inventive swear and having a good old scream at the sky, it rarely gets people to change their mind. Whereas this is so (laughs) thoughtful and well-researched and powerful and emotional that yeah, it's a, it's an, effective way of using your voice definitely there's another line that really really stood out to me and it is you're not supposed to say things that people don't want to hear and that is a huge reason why so many victims of domestic violence stay silent because you know that person who's doing the abuse is someone's son brother friend all of that dad all of those things it's very easy for people around to not say anything even if they notice that behavior because they know it might make them unpopular and that makes it even more important that we're not complicit, that we do raise our voices. And also, I've been thinking a lot about denial and how it kind of it operates on an individual level. Like if something like this has happened to you, then you you don't want it to have happened. So you're in denial. And then maybe, I, I don't know if it feeds into the way that people don't listen to victims and because they don't want it to have happened, whether it's the victim's, related to them you know their their family member or whatever like people just don't want the event to have happened and the easiest way to do that is to deny that it has happened I I don't I've just been like playing with it playing with the idea of it and wondering if that's part of the problem and part of the reason that women aren't believed I think it's a fear thing a denial thing it's uncomfortable we're not very good at dealing with uncomfortable subjects it's going to ruin that cup of tea you're having you know fuck it that cup of tea's ruined you make another one you listen and you make another one and I think as well as raising our voices and joining in the talking it's so important to listen yeah Eliza in its excellent entirety is available wherever you get your podcast but if you do want behind the scenes content do subscribe to the crowd stories channel And if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, help is available. It's available now. You can call the 24-7 National Helpline on 0808 2000 247 and get free confidential advice at www.womensaid.org.uk. Emma, please tell me you're going to be writing more and where people can find out what you're up to. I am writing all the time. I won't say if it's more of Eliza. If you haven't listened yet, you have to see if there's possibility for more at the end and my socials is emma loves robots and i'll let you know if if anything's going on for sure emma loves robots so i was in cambridge the other week and they've got the little delivery robots which are so cute they're so cute (laughs) but you know give them time you have clearly got a fondness for robots how do you feel about the prospect of robot overlords do you, you think is that something you're into do you know what right I think about this quite a lot with everyone's worried about a robot uprising and like bring it on but, <laughs> but maybe maybe they just want equality you know yeah maybe, maybe. that's all anybody wants yeah. 
I think a choice between robot overlords and monkey overlords. I would choose monkeys. I don't know, just because they're, they're, they're kind of cuter. <laughs> they're probably not going to drill into my brain. They'll just all out kill me straight away, and, and that's better. But yeah, I, maybe the robots just want equality. So, you know, say hello when you're at the little checkout. Be like, hello, yeah. how are you? Yeah. Yeah, how are you feeling? <laughs> Emma, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me. It's amazing. I'm joined on Zoom by Shante Joseph, host of The Guardian's new podcast, Pop Culture with Shante Joseph. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you about this podcast today because obviously Shante is hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. I thought I would get Shante on the line to talk to me about her I don't know, favorite, top, most interesting, whatever you want to call it, moments in popular culture over the last year. So Shante, can I just ask you a little bit about the podcast first of all? The Guardian have been doing like amazing podcasts forever and then they were like, you know, we want to do something that's regular that kind of exists in the pop culture space. Of course, it's still like a, a journalistic approach to pop culture, but it's still like quite fun and entertaining. And, so, and then we basically spent like five weeks piloting different styles and different episodes and guests and whatnot and then we yeah, finally launched it in November with our first episode on Rihanna's. So every Thursday we have a meeting as a team where we, we kind of all bring our ideas to the table and we're like okay cool I saw this thing it looks really interesting and have you seen this story or this might be trending next week or we look at new releases coming out whether it's like film or tv or kind of upcoming events and stuff and we start to think about like yeah, the topic at hand and then how we want to approach it. So who you want to talk to, what's the story you want to tell, what don't people know a lot about, how can we kind of inform people in a way that's like still fun and engaging, but is still like critical and narrative and all that stuff. You know, you've got Jan Leeming talking about I'm a celebrity and, and, and Matt Hancock being on I'm a celebrity. You've got Dane Baptiste talking about if British comedy has a race problem. You've got Jamila Jamil talking about this whole thing of, you know, women's bodies being trends and how we're going back to super skinny and, and, and all of this. So it's a really like varied subject list yeah there's a lot and that's the thing with pop culture it's so broad and it's weaved into everything that we do do you know what I mean whether it's you know cultural trends around I don't know food or fashion mm. relationships like so much of it unfolds in pop culture and I think it teaches us a lot about ourselves it, it basically interacts in our everyday life and how we speak to and engage with each other like it's it's influential like that's why it's popular and so I think that's the exciting thing about pop culture it can literally mm. be anything you want it to be and there's always something to talk about like we're never short for ideas or topics because everything is pop culture I think it's really interesting because pop culture is it's a bit like pop music, I guess. People kind of turn their noses up at it a little bit, like, oh, this isn't important. But as you say, it does it, it informs debates and, and big conversations in society. Like, you know, the, you've got an episode on The Crown, for example, and, and the kind of, I don't know, shall we say moral ambiguity <laughs> around the series. That's a serious conversation to be had, right? Yeah, that's that's the thing. I feel like we're always talking about pop culture, but also like the small p politics within pop culture as well, because a lot of it is about, yes, this is a trending issue, but then there is always something underlying in it that is like more of a serious 
um, not necessarily a problem, but a more serious approach to take. And that's why I, I enjoy it, because obviously I, I love politics. I've been doing some form of politics since I was like in uni, even before uni. So I always have an interest in exploring social issues. And I think this podcast gives me the opportunity to explore social issues through a pop culture lens, which I don't think you see a lot of. OK, well, you've picked pop culture events i guess shall we call them uh, of the year that you want to talk about none of these are I, I don't think featured in your podcast so your your powder's dry here so people can still go and listen to your podcast to hear your takes on on other things no big spoilers so the first one i picked was the will smith infamous slap that happened at the top of the year i know will smith was banned from the oscars but you know did he deserve that and in that moment, how did people react to it? And what was shocking about it? And why did loads of people even come to his defense? Like I found it quite an interesting event to unfold because people were really conflicted about it. Like if someone slaps someone, you just think, oh, okay, this is an autom- automatically a bad thing. Mm. But it was like the context in which it happened, like Chris Rock making fun of Jada Smith's hair and saying, you know, she looked like G.I. Jane, but not really addressing the fact that she was dealing with alopecia. Do you know what I mean? This is something that a lot of women deal with across their lives and it can have a huge impact on yourself, how you view yourself, how you're seen in society, this idea of your hair being everything to you, particularly as a black woman, hair Mm. is very political. And so there were so many things that were happening at that moment that made it, for for a lot of people, even for myself, a difficult thing to, to rule out as just bad because as a black woman as well, I did feel a bit uncomfortable considering that Chris Rock also created a documentary all around black hair and relaxers and how they're very cancerous and all of the stigma that comes with, you know, having Afro hair and whatnot. So it kind of felt very, for me anyway, very contradictory. But it was an interesting pop culture moment because it wasn't something that everyone universally agreed on. And it also made people a lot more aware of the issues that, like, I guess all women go through, but particularly black women when it comes to our hair and being made fun of and the insecurities that we grow up with because you know the thing that grows out of our head is kind of seen as controversial whether it's like certain hairstyles being banned at school or afros being banned in workplaces and stuff like that so hair is a very political topic and this was a like perfect way that pop culture and politics or pop culture and social issues began to intersect. I I kind of felt it was a bit knight in shining armour kind of thing, like running up there to defend her honour. I I, I sort of didn't really like it from that kind of side of things. Yeah, because I saw a lot of that. And I think taking that issue with it, I do agree. Like, I I think it makes sense to feel uncomfortable with the fact that, like, we have another situation in in which a man feels like, okay, I need to defend my wife's honour because I'm supposed to be, you know, her her guardian, her caretaker, or this is someone that like belongs to me. And so you can't disrespect them simply because of my relationship with them. So I, I totally hear it from that perspective. I think the drama and the mess of it all, I found particularly entertaining because I feel like award shows are dry. Like award shows <laughs> are streaming. I can't I cannot remember the last time I sat through an entire award show. Like I didn't even think I remembered that the Oscars were even happening until I woke up the next morning and saw the slap, I didn't even have a clue. And so for me, it really did then put award shows like on the map again. And, and I think a lot of the issues that people brought up that I agreed with was the fact that there are so many people in the history of the Oscars who've been 
awarded and they've been terrible people. Do you know what I mean? They've been abusive or there have been allegations of misconduct. And it's like, these are people who can still attend. These are people who are still kind of worked with and like they never really face repercussions for their actions. And maybe it's because people haven't actually been exposed to their wrongdoings or it hasn't been kind of seen on stage in this way that we are more comfortable with ushering it away. But here was something that was so blatant and in our faces, it felt like, this is something that I can boldly take a stand against because it was such a, a public incident. There was more of an outcry. But at the end of the day, like there have been so many scandals in the history of the Oscars. This feels like a minor. Do you know what I mean? Well, let's move on to the next one. I have myself been boycotting the World Cup in Qatar. So w- what are your thoughts on the World Cup in Qatar? So, yeah, I was literally having a conversation about this yesterday with someone who was Lebanese and they were kind of talking about the fact that everything that's happening in Qatar when it comes to, yes, LGBT rights and when it comes to labour laws and the way that people were treated and like kind of building the stadium and the inequality that exists in Qatar and, you know, the minimum wage that people are paid there and the fact that so much of their population is like migrant workers who are like, you know, being exploited and there was a lot in there that was like, yeah, this is really upsetting. I think people's discomfort was the fact that, oh, well, this can be said of so many of the countries that host kind of huge events. Even when um, we had the Olympics in London and the way that a lot of homeless people were kind of displaced. And there was this this rush to gloss over a lot of the kind of social inequalities mm-hmm. that we were going to be on the world stage. But I obviously still have a lot of issues with everything that's happening in Qatar and I do appreciate the fact that people are being outspoken about it, especially big footballers, teams, even people that I've never really seen talk about political issues have been very vocal about Qatar. And like that's been quite warming to know that people actually do care about these things and they, they, have, they actually have a stance on it and they're not afraid to kind of display it. But there does feel like a bit of, well, oh, like this has happened elsewhere or this is happening even in your own country and these things are never spoken about. But it's good, I guess, because there's a there's a huge learning moment happening. So, of course, there are people learning about the way people are exploited as a labor force. And then there's also an unlearning of what we understand, like colonialism to be and our role in it and why so many countries have abhorrent laws when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights. And so on both sides, I think it's it's been good. Like we're learning more, we're understanding more. But then, yeah, there's also the fear of like, are we being a bit hypocritical because even when I I remember listening to I think it was an economist podcast and they were kind of talking about the fact that the the head of FIFA was like all of the countries involved in the World Cup um, particularly in Europe have you know very horrible past and you know they shouldn't really be calling out Qatar about this stuff if they're not <sighs> doing the work to build their own things and I I hate the what what about yeah. it all. what I hope comes from this moment is that people are like okay, cool, we're taking a stance against this and we're acknowledging all the wrongdoings of Qatar. And so what we're going to do from this moment is keep that same energy. I totally get the point that people are saying that like, well, you know, if people came to your country, you'd expect them to observe your country's rules. I'm not against the principle of that. I fervently disagree with their rules, but like, I'm not against the principle. And, you know, it shouldn't be some kind of civilising mission or whatever. But at the same time... I think that an, an organisation such as FIFA, which is very happy come Pride Month to, you know, lob the old rainbow flag around or whatever and be like, woo, look, football's for gay people, we welcome you. You can't then say, right, we're going to host it in a country where you literally could feel 
afraid for your life if you travel mm. there because you're automatically excluding like huge numbers of people who you've been making an active effort to say hey come in you're welcome you're welcome in the game kind of thing so mm. so that's my issue with it and obviously the migrant workers but like we know that these things are happening they've been happening in that part of the world for a very 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 long time so mm-hmm. we should be talking about that all the time not just now also, Johnny Infantino, who referred to the speech he made, where he also said in that speech, he said, today I feel migrant worker. Today yeah. I feel like, you know, black. Today I feel gay. It's like... That speech was mad. And also, the th- like, the, the, the way he tried to compare growing up and having, like, ginger, ginger. hair or whatever <laughs> to being black or being queer. And it's like, you're, you're stretching now. Okay, let's move on. I don't know a lot about this next subject that you've picked. I know that she was briefly dating Kanye West. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. That's all I really know about her. So please, Shante, tell me more about the enigma, uh, or, or not, Julia Fox. <laughs> so Julia Fox, she is an actress, and she's known mainly for being in um, Uncut Gems. And she was nominated for like a Breakthrough Actor Award for her role in that I really didn't know anything about her until this year either. And then she appeared on a podcast called Call Me Daddy. And she kind of said this thing like, you know, you know, I was the muse in Uncut Jams. And it just, it went viral because she just seemed like so ridiculous as a person. And then she started dating Kanye West as well. And it's, it's so weird how first people saw her and they were like, oh, like this lady is really strange. What's going on? But then Julia Fox is annoying. And so am I. So it's like, I feel seen in, in this woman. It's, it's so weird though. I don't know how people can just like kind of pop up out of nowhere and you're like, I don't know what to make of you. But then over time, you're like, wow, you're really winning me over. But in a weird way, it's kind of endearing that she just seems a bit carefree. I interviewed someone, Emily Beetle, who's written a book about authenticity called This Is Not Who I Am. And it's all about how we're all striving to be authentic, but you kind of like, you can't really be authentic because part of being authentic is that you have to be seen to be authentic as well. Can you really ever be authentic when part of it is always, by definition, a bit performative? Is Julia Fox just an authentic-ish individual? Is that is that what you're sort of loving about her? Yeah, I think there's something about her that just feels really careful free in the and I I do agree with that whole idea of like you know being authentic and everyone aspiring for authenticity does feel a little bit out of reach and is a bit contrived and is I don't think it's ever really achievable but I think she's herself she just shows up online and she she's quite unafraid and I think she's part of this wave of embracing your own cringe and I think (laughs) in, in aspiring to be authentic the most powerful thing you can do is be like I am cringe and I'm annoying and I'm going to lean into it as opposed to performing coolness. You kind of get a lot of people online who are like, if you want to be the it girl, then you need to dress like this. Or this is, you, you see a lot of trends around aesthetics online. And because she is so cringe and she is a bit like, you watch her and you're like, oh, but there's something about it that's quite alluring because you're, you, you know that she's just doing her own thing and she's not aspiring to fit into a certain like way of being, particularly as, as a woman in the public eye and I think that's why people like her and I think oh okay she's actually quite cool. Clearly I'm gonna have to do a little bit more watching of Julia Fox I'm gonna have to go and pay her a bit more attention. So next the summer of cheating 
Adam Levine, for any listeners who don't immediately recognise that name, he is, I think that's still a thing, the lead singer of early noughties sort of romantic bedwetting music, uh, which I I actually used to quite like, so I'll hold my hands up there. Maroon 5. He had his pants pulled down, metaphorically speaking, didn't he? Tell us more about it, Shante. It's been a weird year, I think, for like cheating and rule breaking I think coming out of the pandemic and being on the streets and being outside and like you know living a a life that was like very restricted I think you now kind of are seeing all of these like mad cheating scandals happen and I the main one I always think about is the Adam Levine thing because he's married to this you know very beautiful wonderful supermodel and then he was messaging not like underage but just messaging like young women Mm. on instagram and he was just sending them these they they weren't necessarily salacious or that they were very cringy weren't they yeah it's so hot like yeah it's like this is how a 40 year old man would flirt with a 21 year old that's exactly what it was and it kind of the girl who he dm made a tiktok about it being hey so like you know Adam Levine has been like messaging me and he is going to name his child after me. Or he asked if I could, he can name his his new, his unborn child after me and da, da, da. And it was just like, the whole situation was just really cringe. And then it was shortly after the Adam Levine thing, I think like maybe a week or two weeks later, there was a whole incident with like the Try Guys. They're like poor guys who make, like they, they kind of got big in the sort of like BuzzFeed era and they used to just do videos trying things. So it could, they try ballet or they try a lingerie or one of their viral kind of videos was trying out tr- childbirth. So they were in like a childbirth simulating machine and they basically ex- like experienced the pain of childbirth. And I remember that video going super viral. But I've given birth and I, I don't think you can simulate that pain. <laughs> Listen, they are just doing anything and being like, this this is our thing today to try. Mm. And one of them cheated on his wife with uh, somebody who works within the company. And it was like, obviously a huge scandal, but it was the way that they approached it afterwards. So they made this like really sort of angry stern video where they all sat down without the fourth try guy and they were just like you know we are so appalled at this thing and we've removed him from the group and da 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 and it's like and he can't be a part of us anymore because you know we should be held to a higher moral standard and I just remember that whole scandal unfolding and just thinking it was like kind of hilarious obviously being cheated on or someone cheating on you is is a horrible experience but it was their approach that really shocked me because I feel like you've had so many massive cheating scandals with celebrities in the past but there's never been this sort of need to really really slander them which I thought was kind of interesting like men normally just get away from this but for some reason in this incident it it was like we're taking a moral stance like the video almost felt like something you'd make if it was like an apology video or if you know you'd made this really horrible content or you'd have offended someone and you wanted to kind of show that you kind of stand against whatever it is that happened but it was just them being like our friend is trash and we don't associate with him anymore like it it could have been a statement it could have been an an iphone note statement but they made this very sort of like edited scripted video where they were like we are absolutely outraged at this thing and it was like oh okay this all feels very new and very different it's really interesting because in the buzzfeed article i was reading about this they talk a lot about the moralizing that happened around the pandemic about rule breaking and you know everybody suddenly kind of became the police like it was really Mm. interesting we kind of policed each other and what we saw as acceptable and people 
having like a moral high ground because, you know, I didn't do this thing during the pandemic or I, you know, wore my mask in this place or someone else didn't. And like that sort of policing is starting to filter into life post pandemic and the way we kind of moralize certain behaviors and the way we treat each other and the way we judge each other. And I I definitely feel like it it, it does stem from a, a lot of the culture that developed during the pandemic around rule breaking and around like moralizing certain like behaviors i think that basically the pandemic and being locked away for the best part of two years has basically just made us all go a bit mad (laughs) and and i think we're going to be seeing the impact of that for a while to come shante thank you very much for coming to chat to me where can we listen to your podcast you can listen basically wherever you get your podcast spotify apple anywhere and where can we follow you online shante i'm on all platforms at shante j so c-h-a-n-t-a-y-y-j-a-y-y and i'm on yeah instagram tiktok all of the places so you can follow me anywhere great shante thank you very much for chatting to me thanks for having me You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we don our sparkliest outfit as we discuss all things women's sport. And we're getting our glad rags on in the name of, of course, BBC's Sports Personality of the Year Award. The shortlist for which, or rather the main award, has been announced today as I speak, which is Tuesday. There is this year a 50-50 split between male and female nominees and I think we might get a woman win it for a second consecutive year after Emma Raducanu's victory last year. The nominees are gymnast Jessica Gadarova, winner of the floor gold at this year's Gymnastics World Championship. She's only the fifth individual Brit to be crowned a world champ. Eve Muirhead, who of course captained GB's gold medal winning curling team at the Winter Olympics this year. And... Of course, Beth Mead, Arsenal and England forward and winner of the Golden Boot at this summer's Women's Euro and member of the winning team, OVS. The remaining nominees are Ronnie O'Sullivan for 7th World Championship in snooker, bothered Ben Stokes, who started England's T20 World Cup winning team, it's not the Ashes, is it? And Jake Whiteman, who took gold in the 1500 metres at the Athletics World Championships. I think... Beth Mead is going to win it. I think she should win it. She was sensational for England. She was this year's Ballon d'Or runner-up as well. She's had an incredible year. And look, if that was a dude, if we were talking about the England men's team, not if it were Raheem Sterling, and we all know why, but if it were Harry Kane, he would absolutely win it, without a shadow of a doubt. But I think there's a real momentum behind this line squad and I think that moment in English sport this year meant so much to so many people not just to England fans not just to football fans and I think people will get off their bums to vote for her I think they'll be inspired to do so in a way that I just don't see for the other people on that list except possibly Ronnie O'Sullivan because I think people do actually really like him the way I see it he is the only credible threat to Mead winning this although Scotland have shown us in the past that they can mobilise themselves effectively. The good news is, because of a ridiculous timetable for all things sport dictated by the Qatar World Cup, which is now thankfully over, congratulations by the way, Messi, I wish you'd pay your taxes properly, but I think I'm glad you won. You won't have to wait long before finding out who the winner is. The winner will be announced this evening, as in Wednesday, at the 69th Annual Awards Ceremony, hosted by... Claire Balding, Gary Lineker, Gabby Logan and 
Alex Scott. I think there are, as ever, people who have been overlooked here. I'd like to have seen Eilish McColgan on this list and I don't want to do a dirty, but I would question why Jessica Gadarova is on the shortlist for both the Young Personality of the Year as well as the main award. That just seems lazy to me. And there are other categories, including Lifetime Achievement Award, which this year will be awarded to um, Usain Bolt. Yes, he's very fast, but he did also retire five years ago. So... um, I have to ask why Serena Williams didn't get this, but whatevs. Anyway, I'm interested. Who would you have chosen? Answers on a postcard slash tweet addressed to at Inspiragen, if you please. I'm done now for this week, but not for the year. You can look forward to a bonus Jenny off the blocks on December the 28th, where I'll be talking to a bunch of women from the world of sport, including excellent cycling journalist and broadcaster Orla Shenoui and England cricket captain... Heather Knight about their highlights of the sporting year. So I'll be back then with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah. Oh, Hannah. 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 Sweet Hannah. I have never, ever been so excited for you to do a plot summary. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> oh, yes. If the words high, see, ya, hold tight ever meant anything, and I seriously <laughs> doubt they did, it would be now. <laughs> this week we watched Spice World the movie, a mashup of A Hard Day's Night, Austin Powers, and what children say when they hold a doll in each hand and pretend that they're talking to each other. <laughs> Released on Boxing Day 1997, it didn't reach the US until January when it broke the record for the highest ever debut for a Super Bowl weekend with box office sales of $10.5 million. I mean, that is disgusting. <laughs> it grossed more than $100 million at the worldwide box office, making Spice World the highest-grossing film of all time by a musical group. If aliens ever invade, we should keep this fact from them as it makes humanity seem unsalvageable. (laughs) (laughs) An hour and a half long, although it feels three times as long. Oh, God. Which I do not mean as a compliment. It was written by Kim Fuller, brother of the band's manager, Simon Fuller, who did actually have some experience of writing and has since been responsible for such buttes as From Justin to Kelly, a musical romantic comedy starring the winner of the first season of American Idol, Kelly Clarkson, and the runner-up, Justin Guarini, which, according to Wikipedia, is often regarded as the worst movie ever made. Which is saying something, given the shit I just made you two sit through. (laughs) How did critics take it at the time? I'm sure this goes without saying, but just in case it doesn't, Roger Ebert listed Spice World as one of his most hated films. Empire (laughs) called it hard to watch. And Golden Raspberry (laughs) Awards founder John Wilson listed it as one of the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made. Anyone remember the last time we watched a film that was on that list? No. No. It was The Jazz Singer. Which is actually enjoyable, though, to be fair to it. (laughs) Filmed between June 1997 and August 1997, mentions of both Gianni Versace and Princess Diana were edited out of the film as both died during production. And a four-minute cameo by Gary Glitter was cut when he was arrested on child pornography offences. They left in a cover of I'm the leader of the gang. I am, though, Mm. because reasons. I think, to be accurate, Hannah, they left in... 
two covers of I'm a Leader of the Gang. I was like, oh, they've just done the Gary Glitter. They're doing it again. Yeah. It is is a banging tune, though, I'm going to say. Not that the film was short of cameos. People who should have known better include Bob Hoskins, Richard E. Grant, Meatloaf, (laughs) Roger Moore, Claire Rushbrook, Barry Humphreys, Richard O'Brien, Stephen Fry, Duffy from Casualty and Norm from Cheers. Michael Barrymore is also in it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Can I just say, I've written at at the end of my notes, has it aged well? Michael Barrymore is in it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get to the plot, if indeed there is one. Rubs hands together, rubs hands together. Very excited. (laughs) Melanie Brown, Victoria Beckham, Melanie Chisholm, Jerry Halliwell and Emma Bunton star as themselves. Shouty Spice, Pouty Spice, carrying the entire weight of this band on her back, Spice. Superfluous Spice and one for the pedos, Spice. (laughs) (laughs) That is that well, Gary Which Glitter's one? Not in it. Yeah, it's <laughs> quite a few. Uh, so that would be Baby Spice. Jerry yes. Spice is obviously superfluous spice, in my opinion. But we'll get to this. Melanie Chisholm's the only one with even vaguely any talent. But here we go. The band are about to do a show at the Royal Albert Hall, so fill the intervening time with a series of uh, adventures. While a newspaper editor tries to find some dirt on them, a documentary crew try to make a film. And a Hollywood producer pitches a series of film ideas at their manager, all of which are better than this film. (laughs) They drive around London in a TARDIS bus, have their photo taken a lot, sing a bit, strike a lot of Tory MP power poses, break the bus's toilet, (laughs) meet Elton John, meet aliens, cosplay Private Benjamin, push two children from a boat, rouse another from a coma, throw their chips on the floor, which I was really angry by, refuse to go on stage and ever leave their friend who is giving birth despite having left her alone in a nightclub just five minutes earlier and arrive in the nick of time to sing a racist song, Peter Sisson's Dances, the end. (laughs) I think you did pretty well. I think you did pretty well to sum it up. You put quite a lot of pressure on me. Have you seen it before, lads? No. No. Never. (laughs) I had seen bits of it before, I would say. Why? I don't know, because it was on on television and I was flicking through the channels or something. I've seen about five minutes of it before because I knew Richard E. Grant was in it. So he must have been in the bit I'd seen. That was quite well publicised at the time, though, that Richard E. Grant was in it. Mm. Yeah. Working for uh, local newspapers for years, you are pretty aware of what's on at the cinema all the time. Mm. So Mm -hmm. some of that might have come through that. But no, I had never watched it before. I'm a bit too old to have ever even liked the Spice Girls the first time round. What about you, lads? Jen, you're sort of Spice Girls' perfect age, aren't you? Yeah, I had their first album on CD and I did I did like them, but I was just kind of getting to the point of being a bit too old for them. So I think after that, I got to a point where I was a bit like, no, actually, I'm quite cool and I like Britpop now. Right. Uh, so it didn't last very long, but I did quite like them in my smash hits days. Right. Mick? Absolutely not. No, no, no. no. I did appreciate them as being an all-girl band who achieved a lot of fame. You know, tip of the hat to them. But I initially hated, even back then, before I would have said I was a full card-carrying feminist, the fact that the women were put into boxes. Here's a sporty one. Oh, 
the woman of colour's a scary one. You know, yeah. this one's a posh one. Is she? I don't think yeah. so. This one's ginger. I mean, there's nothing else about her. And this one's dressed like a baby. Oh, no. But lots of my mates did. And I was baffled by it. Like now, as an adult, looking back at it, like absolutely everything you've just said, yes. But I think the point of it was, or I mean the point of it was to sell loads of fucking stuff, but Jermaine Greer massively credits the Spice Girls with introducing younger women to feminism. And like they said a lot of shit about Margaret Thatcher, particularly Jerry, who is clearly a massive Tory anyway, whatever. I follow her on Instagram. She only ever dresses in white. Yes, I can kind of see where she's coming from with that and the idea that they represented different aspects of Mm -hmm. womanhood, Mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know. And I also think they did burst out of the box, the manufactured pop box that was made for them. I think they were bigger than anyone ever expected and they kind of took over and became these superstars in their own right without needing the machine behind them anymore because they created their own momentum. You know, good on them. I see now that they are incredibly problematic in so many ways. Don't even get me started on Emma Bunton because what they do to her in this film is repulsive. Creepy as fuck, yeah. (laughs) Really nasty. And they already Um, have one for the dirty old men. If Jerry Halliwell ever served a purpose, it was to give dirty old men an erection basically a series of vignettes isn't it of like wank bank items basically (laughs) just strung together with some bad singing yeah and my note says oh jerry just roused a teenage boy from a coma by offering to show him her tits girl power (laughs) one thing that absolutely smacks me in the face about jerry in this is that she really does predate auto-tune doesn't she (laughs) she immediately for me was the one that stuck out as the one that was utterly without talent she can't sing but she also can't dance in fact she dances very you know like a and i hate to to use this but like a drunk aunt at a wedding who's like you know walks onto the (laughs) dance floor like that i mean she's got she's got no rhythm she has no rhythm in in her body she certainly can't act i mean none of them can act but her acting is particularly bad I just, I just really don't see what the point of her was. I mean, she's she had the last laugh because, dress. yeah, she's she really is just tits dress. on a stick, isn't yeah. she? Like it's that's that's literally it. Talking yeah. of the acting, Victoria was she Adams or Beckham? I guess she was already Adams. Beckham at this point. She was oh, Adams. Victoria so. Adams acting is actually so terrible; it becomes funny. Yeah. And I was just like, I think she just knows she's terrible, so she just amps it to be even more terrible. And even though she was always considered the most po-faced one, I actually think she's the one having the most fun with it. Hmm. Have yes. you ever seen that video she does? The Is it 40 questions they do on Vogue? Oh, where they go through outfits? Oh, where no, they like yeah, talk Eilish about stuff and they year. did... Yeah. Um, who was it? Is it? Is she called Holly Bourne? The comedian did like a spoof of it um, that did really well where she goes like into her corner shop and she's I might put the link to this in the mail out. She's having a lovely time. And I see real shades of that in this film. I think she's actually one of the better things about this film. Yeah, I agree. Because she she is having a lovely time. She was the one that got given the hardest time, actually, from the reviews I read. She was the one that everyone was like, she is embarrassingly bad in this. Oddly, there are a couple of lines in this that would be funny, but I don't think that they're meant to be a joke. For example, there's a press pack there 
probably one of the first uses of the word upskirt that I can think of. Yes. But he's but Richard E. Grant says don't it's upskirt them. And Jerry's pants are actually she has no skirt, she's just in pants. So if that was deliberate, it's actually funny, but I don't think it was deliberate. It's it's weird. One of the weirder things I found was that actually, retrospectively, this has given a lot more credit than it was at the time. And I still mm. can't see that. I was expecting to actually think, oh, do you know what? This is quite tongue in cheek. This is quite knowing. This is a sly wink. But I'm not sure it is. I think people are just seeing that now. I think this film is an absolute rampant cash cow and they are beating it with every fucking stick they can find. That is just what I think this film is. I don't think there's any more or less to it. They just found a license to print money and fucking hell they were going to use it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think... I, I, there's no depth to it. I don't think we can like give it really any credit for anything. I see value in the Spice Girls in some ways. I also see that they're incredibly problematic, but I just think this film is just... I can't, I just don't understand, as you put it, Hannah, in your intro, the number of people who should have known better. Mm. I cannot understand. All of those people are like, my kids will really like this. Yeah. They were huge, though. We can't underestimate how big their Spice Girls were. I know, but like Jules Holland. What are you doing? Bob Hoskins. Oh, he'd play boogie woogie piano at your house if you asked him, Jen. Would he? Not Bob Hoskins, Jules Holland. Yeah. yeah. Do you know Alan Cummings? He says this is his favourite thing he's ever done. <laughs> He's that a very funny sad. man. Yeah. <laughs> Roger Moore. I, I actually really enjoy Roger Moore in this. Just the fact that every time they pan back to him, he's stroking a different animal. Like <laughs> James Bond stroking a variety of different cute pets. I mean, what's Mickey Noonan not going to love about that? Yeah. Come on. My favourite bit is when their friend, because they all share a best friend, turns yeah. up and she's nine months pregnant. Yeah. And uh, at least, and they're like, "How's how's Trevor?" And she went, "Yeah, Trevor left." And they're all like, oh, "Like oh, men." And you're like, "Oh my god, can you imagine?" I can't imagine if any of my friends had turned up nine months pregnant and gone, "Yeah, he's left me." Can you imagine? Can you imagine that I've just gone, "Oh yeah, oh, wow, yeah, girl power." And I have just to say, <laughs> I absolutely loved their uh, their single mother interlude oh the montage Mm. there's a lot of flashbacks and montages and what could have been and what might do and i know the bit where they're like where they all pretend they're mums and they suddenly become like fat and grotesque and like and and like just really horrible caricatures of everything someone in the 90s would have assumed like of a single mother basically just Look at the state of all these bins, and you're just like, that is so offensive on so many. Yeah, levels. I can't imagine Liverpool was very happy, you know. <laughs> mm. uh, Richard O'Brien, like seriously, I know it's it's just insane. Every time I thought this film can't get more insane, then Michael Barrymore turns up, and I'm, what the fuck is he doing? He's just, I think he's glitching. I don't know what's going on there. He's making a series of noises and mincing around. I don't I know what's happening. About that bit, I was like, what? I mean, what is the point of any of it? But I was like, does this solely exist to sell like Miss Selfridge camo print T-shirts? Like, is that the only point <laughs> yeah. of this section? I don't understand. I paused it at that point to go and uh, make a cup of tea. Like at the sky. Yeah, to go and make a cup of tea. And when I came back, there was just the five of them standing there with dead eyes. 
and uh, Barrymore like this. And I thought, if I'd just seen that one still, I would never have chosen this. <laughs> it would have put me off forever. Yeah. I suppose it's interesting from the point of view that over the top and Austin Powers-ish that it looks, it is very stylistically 90s, isn't it? The... It looks so budget, doesn't it? Like the the font at the beginning, I thought like... I hope Hannah's made a note of this font because like, <laughs> so I don't have a bingo card anymore. Yeah, I think we could oh, have yeah. done Dunleavy does disaster for this film. Though. Yeah, I can't believe Hannah that you've not um, mentioned the plot hole or like I don't know if it's it's not really a plot <laughs> I don't hole. Have but time, it's, Jen. I don't but have like time. the whole underpinning of it, the premise of the whole thing. How are you that famous if you've never done a live concert before? No, they've never been at the Royal Albert Hall before, I think is the point. No, it's they've never done a they've live concert live before. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, in that case, yeah. I, I gave this film more credit for uh, having <laughs> having uh, sense in it. I mean, it's just it's just ludicrous. It makes zero sense whatsoever, obviously. And like you say, just a massive cash grab. But they did have the last laugh because look how much money they made. You do wonder, though, where, who made that money? Because I don't think... It was the Spice Girls. Well, see, that's it? why I don't buy into this idea that it's terribly feminist because ultimately there are men's dirty fingerprints all over this and all over their entire career. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what they're up to now, obviously Victoria Beckham's doing her thing. She's pretty successful. She's um, doing all right. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's pretty doing savvy, all right. She? But I, Mel B, still working, but, you know. Is she on I'd, America's... Got talent. She's certainly been on one of those. Mm. But, like, you know, I don't think she's got a huge amount of cash anymore. Like Emma Bunton's the judge on Dancing on Ice, for fuck's sake. So, you know. Radio, I think she's got a radio show on something. Oh, she well. does, actually. I think she's yeah. like Capital or something like that, doesn't she? But it's, you know, it's not like a... They, they don't all have, like, illustrious careers, do they? Do you know what I mean? It's it, uh, I suspect they did not make as much money out of this venture as perhaps you might imagine from the amount. No, of I would merch. imagine the reason that they haven't necessarily got illustrious careers is because they don't need the money. I would think that they have made a crap. Do you think? Money mm, oh yeah, yeah. I don't think they've made a fortune. <laughs> I would imagine. Mel B- Mel B's used most of it on her face. Yeah, sadly. Sadly, um, she's beautiful. And like I say, I do think that Mel C is genuinely talented. Yeah. Yeah, and I also do. she yeah. was she was derided certainly by the media as the not pretty one because yeah. she was sporty. And she's gorgeous. And she's a stunner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, I sorry, was... I went all the sun then. She's a stunner. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I was stuck agreed. actually by how attractive she is in this. I was like, oh, but we were told you were the you know the not Plain very pretty one. one. Get at the back, yeah, mm. yeah. Were you angry at me for choosing it? I wasn't angry at you for choosing it. It's no love, actually. It's too silly to be angry mm. about. Do you know what I mean? And it was, it started off and I was like, oh, this is just bad. And it's not bad in a fun way. And it's not mm. bad in a this is going to be excellent to talk about way. It's just at first I found it quite bad in a boring way. Mm. Yes. But I've, I ended up very confused because it is utterly terrible. But I was quite entertained by just the <laughs> the escalating amounts of ridiculousness going on. I, was just I mean, like, they're going wow, early with the aliens, how are they gonna, don't they? Yeah, how are they going to top aliens? Oh, here's Michael Barrymore. Amazing. <laughs> like, who's next? Oh, Bob Hoskins just popped out of a phone box. What the actual fuck? Yeah. yeah. I, I think maybe this film could be summed up for me in when um, Claire Rushbrook, who, 
to her credit, decides to just play this like it's a serious film and actually kind of <laughs> gets away with it. She asks for a drink and it's Elvis Costello behind the bar. Mm. And she asks mm. for a gin and tonic and he gives her back the worst looking gin and tonic I have ever seen in my fucking life. And I thought, well, there you go. That's this film all over. It's a really flat looking gin and tonic in a garage tumbler. At the end, when the credits roll and they're addressing, they start like we're behind the scenes and mm. like Richard E. Grant's on the phone to his agent, blah, blah, blah. And they all go over to Claire Rushbrook and they're like, hello, sweetheart. <laughs> but no they don't know resist. what film it's from. Yeah. <laughs> No one can resist. I mean, Hannah, you, you sort of summed it up there. The thing about Elvis Costello is he's not a barman, is he? Yeah. But the Spice Girls are not actors, so you know, we are where we are. So just if listeners are thinking, wow, this has made me really want to watch Spice World, the movie, <laughs> you kind of can't. It's yeah. really, really hard to get hold of. And I wondered whether that was down to the Spice Girls going, oh, my God, kill this with fire, burn it. Then set fire to it again. We we cannot be reminded of this. VB. VB's going to be. And by Spice Girls, I mean Victoria Beckham, yeah. <laughs> so, Spice World the movie. Moldy or mouldy? <laughs> well, it's it's mouldy, isn't it? It really it's is mouldy. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, you haven't said anything. Mouldy as fuck, yeah. God loves a trial. <laughs> <laughs> Now, clearly, we're not going to have one of these for a while because Christmas. But when we're back in January, what can people watch over Christmas to be ready to be rating or dating with us in January? Mickey Noonan. Join us on January the 4th when you can hear us rating or dating Good Morning Vietnam. Can you say that correctly, please? When you can hear us rating or dating Good Morning Vietnam. Great. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.